and good morning. As always, it is good to be here gathered on the Lord's Day, especially in this Advent season, looking forward to Christ's coming and for us, looking forward to his second coming. If you don't know who I am, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here at Hollis Center Church, and I'm glad that you have joined us today. This is our second week in our Christmas mini-series, and today we'll be in Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 56. And if you're in one of the hardcover uh, black Bibles that are scattered around the perimeter here, that's page 803. We as people, we need good examples. We need examples. Uh, maybe you've encountered a situation where someone used, uh, threw out a big word, and you just had no clue what that word meant, or you, yeah, I think I know what that word means, but I'm not exactly sure. And you say, well, can you use it in a sentence? And, and often, if someone uses a word that you don't quite understand in a sentence, it suddenly makes sense, right? You have an example of how it's used. Legos. Legos are a great example. I'm sure there are a number of you in this room that Christmas morning, you might open up a Lego set, and like I did when I was a kid, abandon my family to put all of my focus on that Lego set until it was accomplished. And they have these wonderful instruction manuals that come with those, with those Lego sets. And there's a picture on the box to, to tell you what it's going to look like. So as you're working your way through the Lego set, there are these little pictures that tell you, okay, you take this piece and this piece, and when it's done, it'll look like this. And then there's a bunch of those, and they eventually work their way up to the finished product. If a Lego set booklet just had instructions that said, all right, uh, take piece A7 and rotate it 90 degrees and put it on piece AB, it would drive us insane. Right? It would not be fun. It would be just like putting together furniture. But like way more nitpicky, right? It just wouldn't be fun at all. We need examples. Um, if, if someone asked you, you know, um, what is it like, you know, what is a good father like or a good mother or a good teacher? we would probably eventually start giving examples. You'd say, well, man, I had this one teacher in elementary school and, and the way she taught and the way she connected with us really made a difference. Or I remember this one instance where my dad on this, this trip we were on, he was very patient in a very difficult circumstance. We as people, we need very tangible examples to wrap our minds around concepts, to wrap our minds around life. And so, as, as Christians, historically the church, uh, throughout its entire existence, has lifted up certain people, men and women, heroes of the faith, as examples. And historically, the term that we've used has been the term saint. Now, now we tend to kind of get a little bit uncomfortable about that here in our tradition because we say, well, biblically, all Christians are saints. You open the Bible, saint was just a term that was used for all Christians, not specific Christians, and yet... Throughout history, the church has affirmed that, yes, we are all saints, and yet has coined certain people to be saints as examples that are worth looking at. And so I think in our, our tradition here, if we struggle a little bit with the term saint, maybe looking at specific saints because of abuses that we see in other corners of Christianity, Mary is probably the top of the list that we get uncomfortable around. Uh, there's definitely, uh, for many of us in this room, there's, there's a mixture of, of a Catholic past. Some of it's maybe very positive. For some of you, it's very negative. 
And we see how in some corners of Christianity, Mary is made such a big deal that she almost eclipses Christ. And yet, she is a wonderful example for us. I don't believe that Mary should just be a mechanism of Christmas. You know, this name that we just throw around, well, someone had to give birth to Jesus, and it just happened to be her. She's actually an exceptional figure in the scriptures, someone we can look to as an example. And so today in Luke chapter 1, we are going to look at the event known as the Annunciation. That is simply the announcement that Mary would bear Jesus, very God of very God. So if you've not already turned with me, we'll be in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This passage starts out referring to the sixth month, and that's because the story before this is the story of how Mary's uh, relative, her cousin Elizabeth, in her old age, conceived uh, by a miracle. And the angel Gabriel went to Zechariah, the husband, and said, hey, you're going to have a kid. And he didn't quite believe the angel, and he was struck mute. And so uh, Elizabeth had been pregnant for five months, and in the sixth month, Gabriel appears also to Mary. Gabriel is an angel. He's a messenger. That's just what the word uh, angelos means, is messenger. He's one of God's messengers. And in Jewish tradition and in ancient church tradition, Gabriel is considered to be the angel who carries the most important messages. He's also uh, the angel uh, who spoke to Daniel in the Old Testament. As we see Mary here, she is uh, betrothed, she's uh, engaged, and, and she's a virgin. And Gabriel refers to her as a favored one, right there in verse 28. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And the word there that's used for favored one in our, uh, our ESVs is very much connected to grace. Right? To, for God to give us any favor is grace, and that God gives us so many good things that we don't deserve. That's what grace is. And so that's why in older translations, uh, it says, Hail Mary, full of grace. So once again, for those of you that might have a Catholic past, the first half of the rosary prayer actually comes right out of this passage of Gabriel speaking the Annunciation to Mary. And Gabriel says that the Lord is with you. Well, what a powerful thing for someone to say to you. The Lord is with you. The creator of the universe the God who is greater than all things, he says to Mary that this teenage girl, he's with you. He's with you. Continuing on in verses 29 and 30. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. As in most cases we see in the scriptures, when an angel comes on the scene to deliver a message, it produces confusion and fear. And yet the, the angel affirms to her, do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. 
continuing on in verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel instructs Mary that she's to name this child Jesus. Now, the name Jesus actually, there's some weird language stuff that happens. So it actually goes back to the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is the same name as Joshua. Uh, but because uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, it was Jesus, and then that was transliterated in English to Jesus. So uh, there's obviously kind of, was Jesus' name Jesus, or is it Yeshua, or is it Joshua? His name was Joshua, but in English we call him Jesus. And I think that's really important because Joshua was a figure who was a savior of Israel. He was someone that God used mightily to rescue his people, to help them enter the promised land. He was even a prophet of sorts. And, and that is the kind of role that Jesus fills and that he brings his people to the ultimate promised land, into the kingdom of God. He is the, the ultimate figure who fights for God's people and delivers them and leads them. I think that name is, is meaningful. Jesus, the rescuer of God's people. And in these verses, we see the promise that was given long ago to David, that he would have an heir who would sit on his throne forever. He would have a descendant who would reign forever and in some sense, be God's son. And here we see the, this prophecy, this promise, coming into a clear picture that he indeed will be God's son in the truest sense. He will be God the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 34 through 37. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God, for nothing will be impossible with God. We, we talked through this passage in our staff meeting this week, and the observation was made that, that Mary's response, or her question, uh, is very different than Zachariah's question from those of you who know the story. Zachariah, uh, when he was given the news that his wife in her old age would give birth to a child, he said, well, how, how do I know this is true? There's an angel before him giving him this news. He says, well, how do I know you're really telling me the truth, in essence? And that's not what Mary asks. She says, how will this be? She knows that God is going to do it. She knows that God is capable of doing anything. But she's just kind of wondering, well, I've never been with a man. So, so how is this going to work. And, and Gabriel just kind of pulls back the curtains a little bit and speaks to the, the mystery of a virgin giving birth to the God of the world. 
that the eternal God, through a work of the Holy Spirit, became a baby in Mary's womb. It's a mystery. We don't understand it. Gabriel just kind of pulls back the curtains a little bit for her. But I love that in there. Nothing is impossible. And that should give us great hope, right? That we serve a powerful God. God who is not under great limitations. Verse 28. I think this is kind of the crown jewel of this passage. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Right in front of Mary is a mixture of great difficulty and great blessing. On one hand, she gets to be the one that through her comes the great promised Savior that her people have been waiting for for a very, very, very long time. But also there is just the functional pressure, right, in that she is going to become pregnant. This is something she's never faced before, and she is going to have a teen pregnancy in a culture where that is extremely taboo. Like Even in our culture, teen pregnancy is still kind of frowned upon. In that day and age, uh, young men and women were basically kept separate from one another. Marriage was often uh, arranged, okay? It wasn't that all the young people were just hanging out together all the time. There would have been a lot of questions, a lot of difficulty, a lot of drama around Mary being pregnant. We get a little hint of that in Joseph's response to this news as the one engaged to her. And yet in the face of this God-given difficulty, she just says, I am the servant of the Lord. She owns it. She accepts it. She doesn't argue. She just says, I am the servant of the Lord. I think that kind of maybe rubs against much of our individuality and our personality. You see so many other scripture, uh, so many other figures in scripture that I think I would relate to more because they argue with God when news like that comes, <laughs> right? When God says, hey, there's gonna be this really difficult but cool thing I'm gonna do in your life. They go, they go well, can it really be this way? Or I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna go there. <laughs> and yet we see none of that in Mary. She just says, I am the servant of the Lord. There's a, a picture, some art up there. And this is a really powerful picture. I saw it a few years ago. Because one of the ways that we can really think about Mary and how she fits into the biblical narrative is that she is the new Eve. She's the new Eve. Last week, we talked a little bit about Adam and Eve. And in the garden, Eve, she failed, right? She listened to Satan. She listened to the serpent. She ate of the fruit. She roped her husband into it. And there, in Adam and Eve's failure, it's the fall of humanity. And we saw a little bit how, how Jesus is kind of the new Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the one who's bringing everything together again, making all things right, bringing life where Adam brought death. But Mary is, in a sense, the, the second Eve, you remember there was a promise given to Eve that there would be conflict between her offspring and the offspring of the serpent. And the, the serpent would bite 
that offspring, but he would crush the head of the serpent. We see that in Mary. That Mary brought into the world the one who would crush the head of Satan. He would bring total victory for us. And so I, just, I love that picture. It's, it's entitled, Mary Consoles Eve. Right? The, the, imagine the great grief that Eve had to go through in seeing what happened to the world due to her actions. And yet in Mary, we see that being made right again in the, word, in the work that God did through Mary. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So once again, Elizabeth and Zechariah, in their old age, have a son. And he will eventually become, uh, well is, but will be John the Baptist, the great prophet to come before Jesus to, to make way in the wilderness. And Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And when Mary shows up, the Holy Spirit reveals to Elizabeth what's going on, that she is carrying the Savior of the world. And so Mary responds in a very dramatic way, in a very odd way, because, okay, it's, it's Christmas time. Many of us are going to visit relatives. Do your relatives usually treat you this way? <laughs> no. I mean, they're often happy to see us or at least pretend to be happy to see us, right? to, you know, depending on it. But usually family is happy to see us, but they do not yell out, you know, blessed are you. <laughs> that, that usually doesn't happen, at least not in my family. I don't know what goes on in your family. And it's interesting, the word for bless here in the beginning of this section is the word for praise. To speak well of. Mary is praised among women. And Jesus here is praised and recognized as Lord. That, that, that Elizabeth, an older relative, feels unworthy for her younger relative to visit her. I, I think that's interesting because usually it's the other way around. Usually younger relatives are supposed to give honor to their older relatives. And yet because of what God is doing through Mary, Elizabeth feels unworthy for Mary to visit her. This is why Christians have historically given Mary a very high place of honor. She is the temple, the tabernacle, the ark, right? In, in the Old Testament, there was a very physical place where God's presence was manifested so that the people could have relationship with their creator. There was the ark of the covenant that was put in a tent known as the tabernacle. Eventually, that was replaced with a temple. In a sense, Mary... For, for a time, was a temple. And that she brought God's presence into this world. That the God of the universe was in her womb. 
Now, in the passage, the, the blessed here actually shifts. Uh, in the end of the passage, she's using a blessed that basically just means happy. She says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here she's pointing to Mary's faith. She says, it's fortunate. You are fortunate that you believed God, that you had faith in God. Moving on in verse 46, she begins a song which is known as the Magnificat. This is a song of praise that has been used by Christians throughout the whole history of the church. It's very reminiscent of the prayer of Hannah in Samuel chapter 2. And in, in, at a very early date in church history, we see it used in Christian worship. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is called the Magnificat because in the beginning, she magnifies God. She makes much of God in the beginning of this song. She rejoices in him. In verse 48, she says that all generations will call her blessed, call her fortunate. Why? We see in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, for he, for. Uh, and he, sorry, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary doesn't take any of the credit for herself in this, this song of praise. She doesn't say, man, I am so great because this is happening to me. She says, look, people are going to look to this as a, as a wonderful event of blessing, but it's because of what God is doing. It's because of what he is doing. God received the credit. I do believe there are biblical and historical reasons to honor Mary and call her blessed. We see it in this passage. However, whatever praise that we ever direct to any Christian hero, any Christian figure, any Christian saint, needs to be directed to God's work in that person. He is the one who deserves all honor and deserves all praise. And we, and we see that at play in her song here. Anyone that we would lift up on a pedestal as an example, and we all do it, right? We, we tend to maybe not do it as formally as other Christian traditions do, but we have our figures like, like Billy Graham or George Whitfield that we look to them, Charles Spurgeon, and we remember them as, as great figures in the faith. We need to be careful that whatever praise we direct towards that person's life, it really needs to be directed towards God's work in that person's life. I love this song. It portrays God as faithful and merciful to those who respect him in every generation. He brings down the proud and the rich. 
and the powerful, and he lifts up the humble. He feeds the hungry. I mean, this is what Jesus is doing and bringing his kingdom. He is turning the power dynamics of this world upside down. And she sees her carrying Jesus as a continuation of this pattern. The promise of old is coming to fulfillment in her. I already alluded to it, but I think one of the dynamics we see here, and I think we have all seen this in our lives, is that blessing and difficulty come hand in hand. Great happiness and honor is often, often accompanied with difficulty and suffering. Here are just maybe some, well, well here's, here's, a, here's a silly example. And I realize I'm wearing a, I wore my L. Bean flannel and my green pants today. So, I mean, this looks like I'm in a commercial or something. Uh, but I have two canoe paddles here. So the one on my right is one that I carved myself. And uh, it probably looks actually pretty decent for some of you that are maybe in the back of the room because you can't see it up close. Uh, this is the second canoe paddle I've carved. And I have made a load of mistakes uh, carving canoe paddles, especially because I like doing it with mostly just hand tools. And so that has a lot of limitations. I did a horrible job picking out a piece of wood for this. It has a nasty knot here that caused trouble. It's warped a bit since I've made it. It's way too heavy, a little bit too tall. There's, there's all sorts of things wrong with it. And the process takes a long time. Right? A lot of time uh, with a draw shave, and, and knives and sandpaper and boiled linseed oil and all sort of stuff and blisters. And I didn't even get that good of a paddle out of it. It's a good decoration. You know, it looks rustic. You know, that was, put that on the wall of a camp or something. This paddle right here was, was gifted to me by someone. And this is made by a very good company. It's extremely lightweight. It's durable. Uh, it's made of, of strips of, I believe, cedar that have been glued together. There's no gaps in the, in the seams where they've been connected. It's, it's the perfect height for me. It feels good. This is a fantastic paddle. Someday, I want to be able to make paddles like this. I think that would be really cool to be able to make a paddle that's as good as this. But am I going to be able to do that overnight? No. Right? You don't get good at something just instantaneously. You don't. Right? If I'm going to be able to one day make a canoe paddle like that, it's going to mean I make a lot more of these. A lot more of these, a lot more blisters, a lot more failures, a lot more difficulty if I'm going to experience the, the honor and the joy and the blessing of being able to make a good canoe paddle. That's life. Some other examples, the blessing of marriage. We often talk about that, how, how marriage is just a blessed union. But it's difficult, right? Most of you that are married or have been married, it is difficult. The whole happy ever after thing is some of the greatest baloney we've ever sold. And what I'm, I'm not... I'm not putting down marriage. I'm just saying in, in all those fairy tales, all the conflict and the difficulty happens on the front end of the story. And then they get to ride off in the sunset. If the hard part's over, you know, he's no longer a frog. Everything's going to be great now. 
You haven't even started to work on your problems, okay? Haven't even started. I look around at the older married couples in my life, and I think marriage just keeps getting, I wouldn't say more difficult, but it, it changes. And it's difficult season after season after season. It's also good season after season after season. Having kids is, is also, I think, an example of that. Children bring immense happiness and honor. Right? We have a whole day every year, Mother's Day, to honor mothers. Because that, that, that labor bringing kids into the world and, and not strangling them because they frustrate you. Right? That, is, that, that, is, that is an immense way to gain honor. That was not in my notes, obviously. Um, <laughs> but it's challenging. It's challenging. Sylvanus woke us up. Every hour and a half or hour last night, okay? Like, I'm delirious right now. Yeah, last night was not good, okay? <laughs> My parenting is, is challenging, but it's full of a blessing. It's, it, this is just the way life works. You know, you have to work generally long hours to get a good paycheck. And these are all common grace examples. These are all just elements of life that God has given to all of us. Right? Like whether you recognize God or not, this is how life works. But when it comes to the level of having relationship with God, the causes to which God calls us are never easy, but they are full of blessing. They are full of honor. There's great opportunities to find happiness in serving God, but they are never easy. Loving someone who is unlovable. Supporting the needs of the church when there is so much else to spend our time and money on. Visiting the sick and those that are in sorrow. Sharing truth with others, even when we are mocked and attacked. The list could go on and on and on. The works that God calls us to do. They're not easy, but they are full of blessing. And so I think we can pull two lessons from Mary's example here. Two lessons. There are probably more lessons, but just two today. The first, and they're very much related, Mary humbly and trustingly embraced the mix of difficulty and blessing God was bringing into her life. Mary humbly and trustingly embraced the mix of difficulty and blessing God was bringing into her life. As I said before, many figures in scripture, also just in my own personal life, uh, as human beings, I think we tend to argue with God. And that's not necessarily bad. I think it just shows who we are, <laughs> who we are as people. Uh, we often uh, argue with God, debate with him, try to ignore our calling, maybe even run from what we know God is calling us to do. We all want to be blessed, right? They're those kitschy little signs that they sell, you know? I don't want to call any of you on your decor choices, right? But, but you go into Hobby Lobby, right? And, and about a third of the signs have the word blessed on them, right? Especially around Thanksgiving time. Like, we all want to be blessed. We all want God to pour good things into our life. But often when we look at the mix of difficulty that comes with it, we say, I don't want that half. God, can I just have this half? That's not how it works. That's not how 
this life works. Mary had the amazing honor of bringing the Savior into the world. And she also had to watch him die on the cross. Of all the sorrow and grief that the Christians experience when we think about the crucifixion and the horror of that event, none of us were Jesus' mom except for Mary. She had a humble view of herself and a high view of God. Humble view of herself and a high view of God. She knew that she was nothing great, and yet she also believed that God could use her. I feel that we often fall on one end of the spectrum. Either, either we think we are the greatest thing since sliced bread, or we think we're the worst thing since sliced bread and we should be thrown in the trash. I think we see that fluctuation in our own hearts and minds, right, between, you know, extreme pride and then just wallowing in despair and self-pity. And yet, yeah, Mary, I think, really has a good balance here. She, she recognizes that she is a humble servant, but she knows the character of God. She knows that God can use her. It's kind of, kind of a tangent, but I believe that a high view of God promotes a right view of self, not a low view of self. Notice I said a right view of self. Maybe we think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. But when we enter into relationship with our creator, we have a purpose. And that either brings our lives into focus or that raises us up. Probably both. We have a design and purpose and what we see in, in Mary is humility with readiness. She was humble, but she was also ready to be used by God. Mary embraced both the difficulty and the blessing. I believe we should too. Number two, greatness in the kingdom of God is about serving. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about serving. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28 but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the example that Jesus gives us. Speaking to his disciples, he says, look, don't treat authority like everyone else does. In my kingdom, greatness is in serving, not being served. That's why I have come, right? That's what Jesus said, look, I've come to serve. I've come to die so that you could have life. And this is the model for us as Christians. And so when we look to Mary as being most honored above women, among women, and, and I would say even maybe among all Christians that have ever lived, it's not because she was powerful. It's not because she built herself a great platform for her ministry. It's because she said, I am the servant of the Lord. Mary is the first Christian, in a sense. Right? She was the first person to fully accept Jesus coming into this world as Savior. 
And I believe that this should be our attitude. I am the servant of the Lord, embracing the difficulty that comes with the blessing that God is bringing into this world, into our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I know in my own life, I have, I've often not tried to place myself as the servant, but maybe try to place myself in a position where others served me and met my needs and my goals. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. Help all of us to have the mindset of servants, especially in this busy season where we are brushing shoulders with people we don't always see and we're under maybe an extra amount of pressure. Help us to, to be servants to one another and paint a picture of who Jesus is. In the name of Jesus, I pray.